This is basically theory one, unit two, part one. So this will be just a quick synopsis of how uh, a paramedic call on an ambulance would typically flow. All right, so it <coughs> doesn't always work this way, but um, when you're, uh, your first responsibilities when you arrive at work is to do your vehicle check, and that means a uh, circle check of the vehicle, uh, and uh, which we'll go over in semester uh, two. Yeah, two. Um, in ambulance operations. And uh, that includes checking all the equipment inside the vehicle, making sure uh, none of the drugs have expired, that you have the right amount of you know, oxygen and dressings and drugs and everything else. And um, <coughs> that usually happens in the first 15 to 20 minutes of your shift. Uh, but a call can come in at any time at the start of the shift. Uh, usually you take a report from the offgoing crew, the outgoing crew, and uh, they'll debrief you on anything that might be missing if they're coming back from a late call or, uh, you know, if they're fully stocked, they'll let you know if there's a piece of equipment at the hospital that they haven't retrieved yet, they'll let you know. But um, the vehicle should be in working order, but uh, dispatch usually tries to give us a minimum 15 minutes at the start of shift to make sure everything's there. But if you get an early call, then you check the vehicle when you get back, but hopefully everything should be there. When you're at a base, uh, most base stations uh, don't use a phone anymore. They use an overhead paging system. So you'll get a page, and you'll get minimal uh, information. Um, there'll be a voice message. Sometimes it's a computer-generated voice message. They'll just type in the message. They'll say, um, act in base, code for main and mill. And that's all the information they'll give. And you get on the air and you get the rest of the information. Sometimes they'll call on what they call a hotline. It's, a, it's literally an old rotary phone without the rotary dial. Uh, so there's no way to dial in or dial out. The minute you uh, dispatch can dial straight in to you. Uh, if you pick up the phone, it starts to ring at the dispatch center. It's just a direct dial and it it's usually has that old style sound just uh, like this. It's one of those. It's a little startling, quite frankly. <laughs> so fortunately, you don't hear that kind of um, phone ring much anymore because uh, uh, for a lot of medics, it's a that sound is older medics. It's a kind of a trigger, you know. So you hear that sound, you know, it's like waking up at 3 a.m. to most wicked call of your life. So, and there are certain policies around how quickly you respond. So when the pager goes off, you have to be on the air in the ambulance and on the air within two minutes, under two minutes. Uh, if the phone goes off, you've got to be on the air within two minutes. So, uh, my advice to you is pay close attention to your bladder. That sounds odd, but uh, the minute I get a hint of needing to go to the bathroom, I go to the bathroom, even if it's, oh, this is TMI, but <laughs> even, even if it's, there's like a scant amount that trickles out, uh, it's better to have an empty bladder on a call than, than like suddenly develop the urgency to pee when you're in the middle of a, something life-threatening. It's not a pleasant situation, you know, like this. So, uh, Pay attention to your bladder. Um, this might sound odd too, but generally we make it a, a, it's an unwritten rule that if one, if your partner's in the bathroom, you wait till they come out of the bathroom before you go in, even if there are two bathrooms at the station. And the reason is uh, you may not hear the pager go off um, from the bathroom. And uh, so one of you has to be, you know, available to get on the ambulance and get on the air. 
Um, so we sort of take turns going to the bathroom. I have to tell the newbies this, you know. You know, if I'm in the bathroom, you wait. <laughs> um, so you're going to get minimal call information, and then um, uh, they call that, uh, and then you get some pre-arrival uh, information, and you'll be assigned either, the, uh, either priority one through priority four. Four is lights and sirens. Three is prompt but not life-threatening. Two is a scheduled transfer. Um, so if uh, you're uh, picking up someone at a hospital, taking them to a treatment somewhere, uh, that would be a, a code two or a scheduled transfer. And code one would be a deferrable call. So this would be a non-emergency. And uh, you may get dispatched out code four and you might return code three or you might return code one. Uh, so that's how the codes work. They'll give you the address and sometimes when the address is a little bit complicated, they'll spell it phonetically. So you'll learn the phonetic alphabet in Ambulance Ops in second semester, but no harm in learning it now. So at some point, whenever you like. But um, <coughs> the phonetic alphabet is very specific. So A would be Alpha, B would be Bravo, C would be Charlie, that sort of thing. D would be Delta. Does anyone know the phonetic alphabet from last week? Okay, good. Very good. Um, and then they'll give you a UTM code, uh, which is, um, it doesn't stand for upper tier municipality, it stands for something else, it escapes me now, but uh, it's a map page basically. It's a basically a, 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 an area that's, I think it's about half kilometer by half kilometer. So if you get uh, an address on a you know, dirt road somewhere in the country and uh, when you type in the address it doesn't come up, if you've got the UTM, that narrows it down so you know where you're able to find that road and then just uh, head down that road and look for the address that you're looking for. Um, typically you get the age, gender, and chief complaint with or without the medical history. So you might get a call for a 68 year old male with chest pain, priority four, that's it. They might say uh, cardiac history. So that's a little bit of you know, medical history, but that's about it. That's really all you need. And uh, what's important to remember as a medic is that um, the information you get from dispatch isn't always accurate. I don't judge the dispatchers for that. They've got people calling who are in a panic. Um, oftentimes they're calling for someone else, so they're really not sure exactly what's going on. They're just, you know, guessing at what's happening. So the information may be misleading. Yeah. Um, so in terms of information you conveyed, <coughs> um, are you expected to differentiate between gender and sex, or can you just say gender? We're usually just told gender, like male or female. It's that, that dichotomy. Like, uh, it's rare that, well, I, I haven't encountered yet any, are you talking about like where there's gender fluidity, that sort yeah, of, that thing? Kind of thing? Yeah, uh, I haven't, haven't received a call yet where we were given information, you know, about sort of gender spectrum, but, uh, uh, but I think that's probably coming. So right now it's just sort of treated as a dichotomy. Uh, and oftentimes, you know, patients who may be on the sort of spectrum uh, may just use male or female just for simplicity's sake, you know, in an emergency. So, but uh, yeah, it's a good question. On my website, I had that they were calling it female, and they turned up and it was a man identified as female. Yeah. But they, and they said, oh, the patient's actually male. And they said, I'm female. I said, no, it's scientific. scientific. Right. So yeah. Kind of yeah, and I think it's important to be sensitive to that. Uh, I haven't had that encounter, oddly enough, in 34 years. But um, 
or at least not that I was aware of. You know, maybe I was blissfully ignorant, uh, but it's important to be sensitive to that sort of thing. Uh, now, uh, I, I shouldn't say that's not entirely true. I mean, I've had uh, men who look like women and women who look like men, and um, I don't think I've had anyone who identified themselves as one gender, but was, anyway, I haven't had that conflict yet, but <laughs> in any case, yeah, so most cases, it'll probably just be, um, a dichotomy when it comes to dispatch. So as I was saying, code four is urgent. That's threat to life or limb. Um, so threat to limb would be, you know, like a severe bleed in a limb, leg, arm, or near amputation or an amputation or um, an injury where there's no pulse in the foot or something like that. That would be a threat to limb. Uh, so we treat those both with uh, lights and sirens. So code four is lights and sirens. Uh, code three is prompt. The vast majority of the calls where I work anyway, the, w once we've assessed and treated the patient, when we transport them back to the hospital, it's almost always code three. That's the most common. Uh, so without lights and sirens, but you know, prompt. And one's deferrable. So th what that means is, um, you know, if I get a call for um, somebody who stubbed their toe and broke it and can't walk on it, um, and they don't have a means to get to the hospital and they call us. To me, it doesn't matter. I'm not gonna get wound up about it. You call, we haul, that's all. Um, but it's gonna be a code one return to the hospital. So, or priority one. And so what that means is that if there's, let's say a motor vehicle collision between the house where we pick this person up and the hospital, uh, we would divert to that call and we would act as a first responder. So, so if I'm driving the ambulance um, and we're code one uh, and we get diverted to a motor vehicle collision, I'll tell my partner, I'll just yell to my partner in the back, we're going to a motor, motor vehicle collision. Um, you stay here, I'll get out and I'll get out. I grab the equipment from the back of the ambulance. I go attend to people who are involved in the crash until the transport ambulance arrives. So that's what deferrable means. It means uh, basically you can, in an emergency situation, respond to other calls. Right? So some medics will never go code one because they don't want to be deferrable. Uh, you know, they have to, you can debate the ethics of that. Um, so uh, pre-arrival, we have um, fairly fixed roles uh, when, when you're attending or when you're driving. And generally the rule is, at least where I work, and it's different with every system, um, uh, if I'm attending and my partner's driving, the next call we switch and I drive and she attends. And we just switch call for call, but every service is different. Some services, you know, one might attend for the whole shift and then drive for the next shift. It just depends on whatever arrangements you like to make. Um, it's nice to switch call for call because uh, the lengthiest part of any call is the paperwork. So if I just did paperwork for one call, I'd like to just drive and not worry about the paperwork for the next call. Sort of a thing. But um, I work with uh, primary care paramedic partners. So you know, if we get two calls in a row that require a higher level of care and I have to attend on both, both calls, and the deal is my PCP partner will attend on the next two calls. And generally, this is not important, but if we get called for a lift assist, so someone's just fallen out of bed, they're on the floor, they're uninjured, they're always fine, we're just lifting them up and they sign a refusal uh, of transport, uh, that's not technically considered a call. We still have to do paperwork for it, but, but uh, I'll be still be attending on the next call. If we get two lift assists in a row, 
two bits of paperwork, then my partner's going to attend on the next one. But that's just an unwritten rule we have. So there's a lead paramedic who's in the passenger seat and the driver paramedic who's, who's in the driver's seat, obviously. And um, the lead paramedic will either write the call information down. We get it sent to us on a cell phone. So we have a company cell phone and it's all there. Uh, the time of the call received, the um, address information. Uh, unfortunately, we're not able to just tap on the address and bring up a map. We have this ridiculous electronic mapping system that doesn't give you turn-by-turn -turn directions. Uh, where I work, it's different with every service, right? But we take the info down, uh, we read the map and navigate if we need to, uh, and you sort of mentally prepare for the call. So, you know, if I have a three-year-old with a seizure, so I'm going to turn my phone off so you can't hear it. Um, if I have a three-year-old with a seizure, I'm thinking about, okay, the age of this kid, based on his age, he should be uh, a certain weight, and so I'll do the medical math for that. There's a formula, and if I have to give a certain drug to control the seizure, I'll be thinking about the drug and the dose, that kind of thing. If you're responding to shortness of breath, you're thinking about, you know, uh, if I'm going to give Ventolin, am I going to give it by nebulizer mask or by uh, meter dose inhaler and what's the dose and how much do I give based on their age or their weight, those sorts of things. So you're mentally preparing for the call and you're usually talking with your partner about that sort of thing as well. Um, the, uh, the driver paramedic operates the radio and now uh, the Highway Traffic Act allows emergency services to operate cell phones and radios while driving, uh, but not the lay public. Uh, but we have a very clear policy, and uh, I suspect every paramedic service in the province has the same <coughs> policy, yeah. that you're not permitted to drive and talk on a cell phone, but you're permitted, obviously, to use a radio, because when your partner's in the back, you gotta use a radio to notify dispatch that you're on the air, that you're en route to a certain hospital, what your priority is, that sort of a thing. So the driver operates the radio. It's also one of the reasons why when we turn the steering wheel, uh, we turn like this. I can't even do it now. But you know what I mean? As opposed to hand over hand. Uh, because if you're holding a microphone that's tethered with a wire, you don't want to be wrapping it around the steering wheel and then finding yourself, you know, uh, in a bondage situation with your ambulance. <laughs> so, uh, so the driver drives, obviously. And uh, this is uh, a little... Um, this is sort of what you can expect uh, in the front of the ambulance. It's, uh, it's not quite as complex as a Boeing 747, but uh, there are some things that you can typically see. The configurations would be different. This is a bit of an older ambulance. But, um, so we have light bars, we have primary and secondary light bars. So primary is all of the lights and the secondary is just a few of the lights flashing. Usually when it, we arrive at someone's house and we park on the street or on the driveway, we'll just put the secondary lights on so it's not the whole Christmas light arrangement. We have uh, wigwags, which is um, um, sort of alternating lights. We have uh, alternating high beams. We use that too sometimes. Uh, we have an anti-theft button. So um, you can leave the vehicle running and take the keys out. And if anyone gets in the vehicle, tries to steal it, the minute they hit the brake or touch the, uh, well, the minute they hit the, the, first of all, the steering wheel is locked, the minute they hit the brake, the engine shuts off. So we use anti-theft a lot in the, in the winter or in the hot, hot summer days uh, to keep the vehicle cool or to keep the vehicle warm and uh, keep anyone from stealing it. 
Um, you definitely don't want to be the medic who has their ambulance stolen because you left the keys in the ignition. That's just not good for your resume. Not a good thing at all, especially if there are narcotics on board. Um, and then we have these, um, uh, these spotlights, uh, left spotlight, right spotlight, for looking at uh, addresses on homes when it's late at night and it's dark and you want to illuminate the whole house. We have those. And we have map lights, which is an overhead light. And, uh, and then uh, the sirens. So uh, uh, whale is the one we use most often. It carries a pretty long distance. You anyone do a whale sign for me? <laughs> whale sound? AIL, come on, come on! I know some of you have done it before. I worked with this guy, uh, Mike Rashad, years ago, and he could make siren sounds like whistling, and it was amazing. It sounded like a siren from a distance. It was just perfect, right? So he and I worked in the helicopter together. We'd hop into the back of an ambulance, and the crew would be taking us to a hospital or something, and uh, Mike would make this siren sound um, from the back of the ambulance and the crew up front would be going I hear another ambulance but I can't see it anywhere <laughs> and Mike and I are killing ourselves laughing in the back it's hysterical so where is that sound that goes up and then comes down I'm not gonna do it. and uh, Yelp it we use for uh, is more of a shorter sound up and down shorter sound we use it for going through intersections it catches people's attentions and then phaser is just like a crazy sound it's just like it sounds um, to catch people's attention. Some of the older ambulances have that that high-low sound, that e -ah, e -ah, e -ah, you know, that European. Uh, those that sound actually carries a really long distance. It's a good uh, uh, one to use. Uh, some of the ambulances still have that uh, sound, or sometimes you uh, press the the manual whale button here. This red, this manual whale button here and then turn it to phaser and it'll give you the high-low. It's very cool. I like to do that every once in a while if our ambulance does it just to shock my partner. Uh, so yeah, that's, uh, that's it in a nutshell. So we arrive on scene and typically we'll back into the driveway. That's uh, one of the ambulances where I work, by the way. And uh, so we park in a safe place. Uh, in, um, uh, in a motor vehicle collision, if there are other emergency vehicles on scene, we'll typically drive past the crash so that we have, uh, uh, we can get to the hospital from there. Uh, we don't have to back up or anything. So we're always thinking about sort of access to the call, access to the patient and egress, which is exiting the call. And um, we go 10-7 uh, on scene, which means we're out of service on scene, or we'll just say something like arrive scene. Uh, we unload the stretcher, we bring equipment, uh, in most calls, we bring all the equipment. The only exception might be a lift assist. We might just bring the monitor for vital signs if, we, if we're told in advance it's a, it's a lift assist. We bring a portable radio with us. Why do you think we bring a portable radio? Updated. What's that? So you can keep updated. Okay, so we can update. Why else do you think? In case we need more allied resources. Yeah, in case we need more allied resources, in case we need fire or police, or in case, yeah, Emily? For your own safety. Yeah, for our own safety, for sure. You know, if. Uh, if uh, you know, we go to uh, uh, a call for someone who fell down some stairs and it turns out to be a domestic and you know, hus husband comes out with a knife or a gun or something and threatens us, we can call, uh, well, we use a 10-2000 code, which means our life's in danger and uh, police will come PDQ. So scene safety. Uh, so if the call suggests uh, possible hazards, 
um, and uh, we're thinking about our own seam safety. I put domestic suicidal and assault there, but um, MVCs are always risky, right? Because there may be broken glass or maybe fuel, maybe. Uh, and what do uh, what do smokers do with car crashes? They they light up, you know, when there's gasoline everywhere. And uh, um, so we think about access and egress. If there's any kind of smoke or fire, then we want to be upwind. So we scan the area for hazards at an MVC. We uh, we look to see if it's secured by police or fire. We look for spills, electrical wire, smoke, fire, vehicles running, or the vehicles unstable. Have the airbags de been deployed? I remember when airbags came out we were reminded that you know uh, if you stick your head inside a vehicle uh, you want to make sure the airbags deployed already because the last thing you want to do is stick your head in the driver's side and have the airbag deploy and hit you in the side of the head that could cause some serious uh, neck injury and uh, I remember uh, uh, doing just exactly that it was uh, like one o'clock in the morning and uh, this driver was um, sitting and talking and I uh, sort of s put my head inside the vehicle to do a head-to-toe exam and I felt someone grab my collar and yank me out of the car and it was my partner saying Rob the airbag hasn't de been deployed so uh, uh, so that was for my own safety it was good and so uh, uh, you'll get fired to take care of the airbag for you and as a fire department on scene yeah, it depends. There are certain hazards that are life-threatening to you and me that we won't go anywhere near. So there's uh, the one up top there is a, a suicide method that we don't see very often, but I know of one case in the GTA, and there have been a few cases in, um, in the U.S. We'll talk about this when we talk about hazards and uh, chemical, biological, nuclear events in third semester, but hydrogen sulfide is one, one way of committing suicide, and the gas is extremely toxic so uh, you can be within a hundred feet of the vehicle and be killed uh, if you inhale this gas it's uh, almost immediately incapacitating so your lungs will become injured and fill up with fluids right away you lose consciousness and you die yeah uh, is there a way to distinguish hydrogen sulfide from other gases no but um, uh, not unless you have some sort of chemical sensing device uh, and so you'd have to have a fire department with a hazmat team that has that kind of stuff but um, oddly enough, people who kill themselves this way typically will put signs on the windows saying don't come anywhere near. So if you see a sign like that, it, don't ignore it. Just, you see it, back away. Back away far, wait for fire to get there. Um, this was a, I'll show you this video in the third semester. This was a truck that overturned and it was carrying ammonia gas. And there was a, the driver was unresponsive on the ground and uh, the police officer went up to him and very, very rapidly became incapacitated. He had a, a voice uh, a sound activated microphone and uh, he talked to dispatch briefly and then you could hear him coughing and then he lost consciousness and he was dead by the time fire got there. So um, anything like that, we wait for the fire department to arrive. <coughs> so safety first. So. <coughs> um, EMS fatalities, the rate is about uh, seven for every 100,000 full-time equivalent uh, jobs. That was uh, stats from 23 uh, firefighters, about 6.1. So um, there are more paramedics killed in the line of duty than firefighters. That's, uh, most people don't know that. Uh, but we're killed typically in car crashes, right? So it doesn't get a lot of attention. Or medevacs. Now, 9-11 kind of skewed all that, obviously. That was an anomaly, but uh, uh, on average, we have more uh, deaths than police and fire. Um, 
so about 4.0 uh, average for all workers. Um, yeah, so mostly MVCs, road incidents, and 31% medevac crashes. So as a general rule, we don't run to calls. Um, I'll walk a little faster and I might even jog if it's a pediatric patient because I think all of us, our motions get heightened for those situations, but for the most part, we don't run. Yeah. Um, No, 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 I'll never test you on that stuff. Yeah, yeah, good question. I, I avoid questions like stats and percentages and things like that for that reason, because I think that stuff is just trivial. It's just trivial information, not important to know. So, uh, uh, you know, and I don't go around uh, talking about who dies more, you know. So, uh, so if, um, if you're at a crash like this, you're pulling up to crash like this, uh, and you're the first emergency vehicle on the scene, where would you want to be in an ambulance? Yeah, Dispassionate Brock? Dispassionate Brock, yeah. You said you wanted to go past the scene? Normally, yes. Yeah, yeah, in this situation, if you're the first vehicle on scene, you probably want to be uh, behind or ahead of the, uh, not ahead of the crash, but this side of the crash. Uh, because you want to protect the crash victims, right? You don't want um, other vehicles to slam in there. So you probably park down at this end here and block the traffic. If there was, if fire and police were there, then we'd probably try to drive around. So this looks like the best way to get around to me. I'm not sure how much space there is here, but we'd be going this way and, you know, asking this guy to move out of the way and we'd uh, drive out in front so we could get, so our uh, egress route is, is clear. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and you can watch for things too, like uh, you know, if it's shattered glass, that's usually not an issue for tires, uh, because uh, the uh, uh, vehicles have tempered glass, and so it just shatters in small shards, and not usually a, an issue for puncturing tires. But you want to try to avoid driving over glass if you if you can. So you just look for the safest route to to get around. Um, what else? Uh, so. Uh, where would you want to be for this one? Left side or right side of this car? Yeah, right side, because smoke is blowing the left side, so you want to be upwind. So you want to be not inhaling the smoke. Now, <coughs> for things like when I go to fires now, uh, what I do is I wear an N95 mask. And uh, uh, the firefighters who are going into the fire or fighting the fire may wear a Scott pack or some sort of mask. But a lot of other firefighters you'll see not wearing a mask. I, uh, but I think it's a very wise idea to wear an N95 mask because you don't want to be inhaling particulate matter. And there's going to be a lot of particulate, particulate matter in a, in a fire. It's interesting, I was, I was, uh, uh, I think I mentioned I've done quite a few rideouts with paramedic services in the United States. And uh, I did a rideout with a crew in, in Reno, Nevada. And um, we went to an apartment fire and uh, we parked very close to where there was smoke and flames and uh, the firefighters uh, were getting the fire under control and some guy up on the second floor tried to uh, get out of his apartment. He was sort of blocked into his apartment and tried to get out by uh, shimmying down a pole on the outside of the building. It was just outside his window. Uh, he grabbed the pole but fell two stories and uh, fractured his calcaneus, his heel, and uh, had an ankle fracture as well. And so, um, 
I'm in the back of the ambulance and the three of us get out and we go over to this guy and it's all smoke in the area. I grabbed a mask from the vehicle and I put it on my face and I went to the, uh, the where this guy was and we packaged him, got him in the ambulance and we moved the ambulance out of the smoke. And uh, the medics were really surprised. Like they, they thought I put this mask on because I had some kind of respiratory condition. They, they said to me, Rob, are you asthmatic or something? He said, no, I, you know, we, we put masks on because I'm not gonna inhale this particular <coughs> matter, right? And that stuff, you know, uh, you can't see it. It's invisible to the naked eye, but it gets into your lungs and, uh, uh, you know, causes damage. Uh, so upwind, generally, you know, at least 30 meters. Um, when it comes to uh, home safety, there's certain um, things to look for that give you an idea whether they've got a pet that might be a bit of a problem. Um, animals uh, on scene calls either love you or they hate you, want to kill you, uh, because sometimes they're very protective of their masters. So if you think you're the dog whisperer, um, you know, you're dealing with a <coughs> different situation, right? You're dealing with someone who's stressed and their animal gets stressed because of their owner's stressed and they get defensive and sometimes they want to bite you. Um, we, we generally ask people to put their dog away in a bedroom or something, uh, birds too. Um, but some of the signs that they've got a big dog are things like, you know, what, a, you know, a per, uh, uh, completely encircling fence would tell you they probably have a dog. And, you know, when you're walking along the patio to the, the path to the front of the house, if I see big chunks of dog poop, big organic landmines, then I know they've probably got a big dog. They got little tiny weedy, you know, pellet-sized poops. I know we're dealing with something small, but they can be pretty vicious too. So uh, you just have to be careful. We, <laughs> this guy, I can tell you lots of interesting calls about um, um, <coughs> about pets. Uh, I know uh, one of my buddies was on a call and they were looking after this lady who'd fallen and she couldn't get up. And uh, uh, he was, asking her some questions and then felt this searing pain in his scalp and he reached up and his scalp was just covered in blood and I guess they had a parrot or some kind of bird that just dive bombed him and just grabbed onto his skull and tore chunks of skin out and then flew away and then it came at him again right and then again and uh, uh, so they <laughs> a neighbor came over to see what was going on so we they had the neighbor try to keep the bird away and trying to swat it away discourage it without actually knocking it out of the sky so you get some weird stuff that happens um, uh, one of the funniest stories I ever heard was um, a friend of mine who went to a call for a guy who was having a chest pain on his front porch this is not a dangerous call but so uh, it's the summertime and she and her partner are on the front porch talking to this guy and he's having chest pain and she's talking to him and um, uh, she's assessing him and, and decides he needs nitroglycerin for his chest pain and nitroglycerin is a vasodilator causes your blood vessels to dilate and drops your blood pressure a little bit sometimes and um, the bottles of nitroglycerin we carry um, sometimes you have to you have to purge the the spray to to make sure that it's so we usually squirt it like two or three times off to the side and then spray it under the tongue. Well, when she went to spray it, the, the owner's cat walked by and she sprayed it a couple of times and the cat walked right into it and went like this. And, uh, <laughs> and the owner said, oh my God, my cat. And she said, cat should be fine. Well, the cat sort of stopped in its tracks and it just stood there, swayed a little bit like this, 
And this guy, this guy is like getting increasing chest pain. Where he was, cat. Oh my God, is that drug going to kill my cat? And, she, and she's saying, No, no. She's assuring him. And the cat's going this <laughs> and swaying even more. And it goes down. One leg goes down. It comes back up. And eventually, it goes down and head flat on the ground like this. And it's just lying there. And it sort of rolls over a little bit. And it tries to roll back up again. <laughs> it looks just like a very intoxicated cat, right? And she said, she said, I didn't want to leave the scene. <laughs> like this cat, I wanted to make sure this cat wasn't going to die. Eventually, the cat you know, got up and slowly walked away. <laughs> like this, this staggered gait. <laughs> anyway, imagine an adult dose of nitroglycerin for like a a two-pound cat it's, it can't be good. So anyway, just be aware of pets. Uh, uh, anyone have cat allergies? Do you? So yeah, you may may find uh, you'll need to bring decongestants with you. So if you get you know calls with cats, lots of cats, <laughs> you might be a little uncomfortable for the shift. So some medics bring uh, decongestants. Um, uh, and cats can be pretty ferocious too. Um, they can be pretty ferocious. Uh, I did a call for a woman who was code five. She's lying on the floor next to her bed. She's got gross rigor mortis. And the cat is lying on the bed facing me. And I'm going to, uh, you know, this lady to uh, grab her arm to see if it bends, to see if she's got gross rigor mortis. And the cat is growling at me. I'm envisioning this cat straddled against my face, claws ripping away, right? and I'm going, nice kitty, <laughs> nice kitty, Shh. and there's a golden retriever in the house, doesn't give a crap, you know, <laughs> golden retriever's like, whoa, 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 people, whoa. you know, so, yeah. If someone has um, a really vicious dog or something like a serval, do we... Like a what? Uh, they're semi-domesticated cats, they're very large. They're oh, okay. Kind of vicious. Yeah. Um, do you call someone to help you um, contain the animal? Uh, good question. Never have had to, so I can't speak from any experience, but uh, uh, chances are you're going to be in and out of there quickly, right? So you might call for backup, like supervisor or police, just to help distract the animal. Um, usually there's family, though, that can get the animal into another room. Would you call it a serval? Oh, they're really cool. They're, um, yeah. They're but they'll kill you. They're big, big cats who look like like they are leopards they look or something. Like yeah. But they'll kill you if they yeah, don't like you. Much. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Well, hopefully they put them away into a room or something. Uh, okay. So when we arrive on scene, what we try to do, if it's an injury, we try to gauge gauge the mechanism of injury. Uh, try to determine what's the history of the presenting injury for an MVC. So we want to know, uh, was this a driver, the passenger? Because oftentimes people are out of their car or they were the driver, but they got out and now they're sitting in the passenger side, you know, because they've been up and talking with police and stuff and they're sitting in some other part of the car. So you have to ask them. You, you can't just assume that, you know, because they're sitting in the passenger side that they're, they were the passenger in the car. Uh, so were they the driver, were they passenger, uh, front seat, back seat, 
car seat, were they restrained, meaning did they have seat belts, were the airbags deployed, so that's important to document and to report to the hospital. Uh, what was the speed of travel? Don't just assume because it's an 80 kilometer zone that they crashed at 80 kilometers. They might have hit the brakes and crashed maybe at 40 kilometers or 30 kilometers, or they may not hit the brakes at all and crashed at 100 kilometers. So you want to get some idea. Um, Hopefully, in the not too distant future, the police will be able to, most modern cars, you can uh, retrieve that data from the car very quickly. Hopefully, in the future, the police will be able to retrieve that data and give it to us so they can, we know the speed of travel, that sort of thing. So type and location of impact, was it head-on, was it, um, rarely do two cars actually hit head-on. They typically hit a kitty corner like this, you know, because they try to avoid the crash, right? So kitty corner. So that spins the cars around. Were they, you know, T-boned? Uh, were they rear-ended? Um, all those sorts of things. Uh, how much damage was done to the vehicle? And in particular, how much intrusion is there into the passenger compartment? So cars are designed to um, uh, attenuate the energy or absorb the energy, meaning that they're, they're designed to crumple in the front. And they're, they're designed to crumple even a little bit more in the corners because they know that cars rarely hit head on, they hit kitty corner. And so that's uh, done that way to absorb energy. So it's not uncommon to see a car which is completely and utterly demolished in the front, but the compartment where the driver and the passengers are is unchanged, right? So what we care about is, is there intrusion into the side, into the front, into the back? And if there's intrusion, we can anticipate some fairly serious injuries, right? Um, so that's what we look at. We look for, you know, sort of inches of intrusion. Is it, I know we work in the metric system, but typically we report, you know, four inches, six inches intrusion. You can flip that to centimeters if you want, but most hospital staff won't have any idea what you're talking about. If there's a death of one occupant, occupant rather, then uh, the chances are that other occupants will have serious injuries. So, uh, and this is important because you'll get people involved in car crashes who don't think they're injured, who feel fine, but they've got serious underlying injuries. So we look at the mechanism, we look at the intrusion, we look at, you know, is there death to another occupant? Uh, and we treat them as though they have internal injuries until proven otherwise. Because I've seen people in car crashes with a you know, broken leg and they're up and walking and the bone's sticking out. Uh, you know, I've had people with major internal injuries and they're talking and saying they're perfectly fine and then 20 minutes later they're in cardiac arrest. Um, so people don't know because they're overwhelmed by the emotion of the event, right? So think about, you know, every one of you has had the experience. At the end of the day, you find a cut on your hand or something, and you look at it and you think, I have no idea how I got that. No idea, right? Because at the time when it happened, you were probably busy talking or doing something. <laughs> That's called the gate theory. You know, you've got other impulses occupying your brain's attention. You don't notice a little cut like that. Well. Multiply that a thousand fold, and that's what you get in car crashes. People so overwhelmed by the emotion of the event. People call it shock. It's not shock. It's just a emotional overwhelm, overwhelming feeling that they're unaware they've got a broken leg or broken rib or a fractured pelvis uh, until either you start to move them or you've got them in the back of the ambulance for 15 minutes and they start to feel it or the vital signs start to change. Was there a loss of consciousness? So. Uh, people can't generally tell you, you know, that they lost consciousness or didn't lose consciousness, but if they have no recall of the incident, uh, then I'll usually put query LOC and report query LOC, or I'll just say to the, the staff, not sure if he lost consciousness, but he has no recall of the event. 
So the nurse knows and I know, yeah, probably lost conscious. We're gonna assume he lost conscious uh, because we're gonna assume he's got a, a brain injury. You know, maybe minor, maybe major, maybe severe, hard to say. Uh, so risk mechanisms, some examples of some risk mechanisms. Fall from greater than a meter or five stairs is considered a high risk. Um, and this is epidemiologically, right? This, this, this is uh, from um, literally millions of patients registered into the trauma registry here in Canada, and the U.S. has its own trauma registry, where they look at correlation between uh, mechanism of injury and actual injury that they sustain based on CAT scans and MRIs and so on and so forth. And they, f they find that uh, a fall from uh, a meter or five stairs is considered high risk. Axial load to the head, that means like um, landing on your head from a fall, um, uh, running in shallow water and diving and hitting a sandbar, hitting your head can cause brain injury, can cause spinal cord injury, that sort of thing. Uh, motor vehicle collisions greater than 100 kilometers an hour, rollover ejection. Anyone who's ejected from a vehicle was not wearing their seatbelt, rest assured. <coughs> Uh, people who are ejected from the vehicle are 20 times more likely to sustain uh, injuries with disability or to die. Uh, I've seen a few people ejected who were then run over by their own car. Um, I had one person who was um, ejected through the front windshield, this was before airbags, and she was caught between the bumper and a tree. Um, so, um, so anyone who tells you that wearing a seatbelt is safer because it gets them out of the vehicle is, uh, is just an idiot. <coughs> um, RVs, so recreational vehicles, uh, uh, motorized recreational vehicles, like ATVs rather, all-terrain vehicles, very, very high risk. <coughs> so, uh, you know, you wanna know things like, were they wearing a helmet? Do they have a roll bar? That sort of thing, but it's, it's a high risk endeavor. I wouldn't discourage anyone from doing it. It's a hell of a lot of fun. Uh, but just know that it's high risk. And uh, bicycle collisions, uh, and that's from the Canadian uh, C-spine uh, study. So um, we want to look at uh, patients for subtle injuries. Um, so, you know, if you're at a motor vehicle collision or a bar fight or something like that, and you see what looks like might be blood on someone's pants, uh, they needed to talk to them and do an assessment and get them to lift their pant leg up because, uh, you know, if they tell you, no, I'm a painter, it's just paint, or I was painting today, it's just paint, then it's a non-issue, right? But if, if they have that stain, they have no idea how they got it, uh, they may not even know they're injured. Happens all the time. Uh, my, I think it was my second month on the job, we went to a bar fight and uh, people were, we were the second ambulance in, people were pouring out of the bar, uh, this guy had a knife and he got into a fight with another guy. So the one guy had multiple stab wounds, people were running out of the bar. And we were stopping people just one by one and saying, you know, are, are you hurt? Were you involved in the fight at all? No, okay, thanks. Were you involved in this fight? No, thanks. You know, so we were apologizing to people as we were stopping them. One guy had a, had a sweater on, uh, a knit sweater, and there was a little hole in it uh, and I said, uh, I noticed you got a, you know, were you involved in the fight? No. I said, okay, good. But I noticed you got a little hole in your sweater. Did you know you had that hole there? And he said, he said, no, I must have just caught it on something. He said, do you mind just lifting your sweater up? I just want to make sure you're not injured. So he lifted up and he had this little tiny scratch. It was, looked like a tiny scratch right here. And I said, look, I know this is overkill, but 
you might have been injured. Uh, you were just unaware of it. And if you have no objection, I'd like you to take him to the hospital. He didn't want to go. His girlfriend had to persuade him. We took him to the hospital. He had a stab wound into his liver. He would have died in about two or three hours. So he was completely unaware. So you might have been just running by this guy and the guy threw a knife into him. And you know, when you're so overwhelmed by the emotion, the adrenaline, the event, you just don't feel things, right? It's amazing. Like when you talk about deadly encounters between police, uh, I'll give you an example. The police officer who shot that guy in uh, the streetcar, do you remember that incident? Yeah. Very controversial on social media, right? Everyone was criticizing the cop for shooting this guy. Now, um, the number of times he shot him, the reason he shot him, all that stuff, we, I don't even want to debate that. But we know from research that if someone's coming at you from a knife, uh, with a knife, I think, I think the minimum uh, amount of space is something like 27 feet. They've calculated this based on numerous, numerous gunfights with police. Um, they say that if he's within 27 feet, you should be shooting him to kill. Uh, and people said, oh, why didn't he shoot him in the arm or the leg? That only happens in Western movies. Um, <laughs> police. They can't do that, yeah, and, and handguns are not that accurate, right? Like, uh, exactly what you said. So the aim is to shoot to kill. You shoot, you know, upper body here to kill. And sometimes your adrenaline is so pumped, you might shoot 10, 15 times, and when you're uh, interviewed later, you were sure you shot no more than once or twice, right? So um, someone come at you with a knife for 27 feet, you shoot to kill. Uh, and the reason why is someone's coming at you with a knife, they're not gonna stop. They'll take a bullet to the chest, a second bullet to the chest, a third bullet to the chest, a bullet to the abdomen, a bullet to the neck, and they'll still come at you with a knife and they'll still kill you. People don't stop. They're so charged with adrenaline. It's the same thing on the battlefield. You gotta keep shooting until they drop, right? Uh, so there's no choice in the matter. And people just don't feel it, right? You think, oh, one gunshot should drop the guy, right? But it doesn't. It's not the way it happens in, in uh, life and death combat. So uh, uh, my point is, that people are injured and they're unaware that they're injured. Like, you know, the guy with the knife who's, who's on drugs or something is so hyped up that, um, you know, sometimes they have a dissociative disorders with drugs where uh, dissociative drugs means that your body doesn't even feel like your body. It feels like someone else's body. So you don't feel any pain at all. And uh, so when you hear about these people with super strength and who can fight off 10, 15 cops at a time, uh, they don't feel anything. You know, they could be punching you with a bone sticking out and they don't feel any pain. Right? So, so same happens at, you know, all the car crashes we go to, people are unaware that they're injured until we get in the back of the ambulance. We do, we look to see if we see anything. We do a head to toe exam to see if they feel any pain and, and then stuff starts to reveal itself. Yeah. Um, when you're on a call, are there any noticeable um, differences or traits between someone who's uh, disassociating because of uh, drugs or someone who's disassociating because of a um, I haven't seen it with a psychological disorder, um, so that probably gives you an idea of how infrequent it is. More often it's um, what we call sympathomimetic drugs, so um, uh, drugs that put you into a hypermetabolic state like cocaine and methamphetamines, that, those sorts of things. So rarely is it a, an underlying mental illness. Um, it's almost always drugs. And, uh, and there are certain drugs that are dissociative, like ketamine is, uh, is a drug that we administer, but it's also a street drug, and ketamine is a dissociative drug. Like you, 
you don't know that your body is your body, like it doesn't belong to you. It's someone else's body, you're just floating somewhere else. Right? So it's a, it's a wild thing. So look for subtle signs. Um, I've had people um, who are even aware that they've got a bone sticking out and they still don't want to go to the hospital because they're so angry at the other guy driving the car or they're so emotionally upset because you know their husband or wife is injured. Um, so people don't behave uh, normally when they're in a stressful situation. You know, like <coughs> nice people just don't behave the way they normally behave in a in a high stress situation. Yeah, is it Ashlyn? Yeah. Okay. Um, so say you have like a husband and a wife and they're like a car accident. Oh, I know um, what you I know where you're going with this. Okay, keep going. Oh, okay. No, that's, that's <laughs> not where I thought you were going. I thought you were going to. I thought you were going to say one's dead. Should you tell the other person that their husband's dead or their wife's dead? If that's what you're going oh, there. Uh, can you take it the same angles? So, uh, so, uh, so it depends, right? If you're in Whistler, where I used to work, you're the only ambulance. And the next closest one is 45 minutes away. So the answer is yes. You take, take the two of them together. You even take strangers together. In an urban center, we'd never take two people unrelated in the same ambulance. We call for a backup ambulance. Even if one's ambulatory and one needs a stretcher, separate ambulances. Husband and wife, you might make an exception. But uh, generally, we'll stick them in two, two separate ambulances. Ingrid? Um, if you get a call and it's for someone you know, will you be permitted to attend to them? Or will someone else have to? Again, nothing black and white, right? Like, um, if my wife was injured and she had minor injuries, I would attend. You know, it would just be, I would just attend. Um, and she probably wouldn't want my partner to attend. Uh, if it's much more serious, then I'd probably back off. And I think uh, if, you know, my partner was attending on a patient who was seriously injured and my partner said, you know, I know him, he's my ex-boyfriend, uh, I'd say, well, I'll, I'll attend. You know? So no two calls are alike, but uh, generally speaking, um, we used to have a policy where I worked where they wouldn't let husbands and wives work the same shift pattern because they were worried that, you know, or work the same ambulance because they were worried, what if they were in a crash and they were both killed, you know, wiped out, that would leave the kids without any parents. Um, so they try to work it out where if a husband and wives are working the same shift, they're on separate ambulances. I know that sounds weird, but Ashlyn? Oh God! <laughs> is it up to you, or is it up to the police to tell them? No, no, it can be up to us. I mean, we're every every much as informed, uh, probably more informed and responsible for that sort of thing. But uh, let's save that for medical legal because uh, that's a good ethical okay. question. Uh, yep. First name? Riley. Riley. Uh, you said like about like knowing the one person. Yeah. How would you sort that out? Oh yeah, yeah, but one so one drive, one's a tens. Well, uh, but it, it, I guess, it just depends on how emotionally charged the call is, right? Yeah. If you're working in a small town, any of you think you're working in small areas? Uh, so you're working in small towns. Um, you're going to know all the people who live there, yeah. and you might have some emotional attachments to some of them, and that's tough. There's no question about it. You know, when I worked in Whistler, we got to know the locals. We had one guy who was vital signs absent. At first, I didn't recognize him when he was uh, VSA, and we worked on him. And then my partner said, "This is so and so," and uh, you know, took us both back a little bit. 
But uh, it depends on how emotionally charged it is, the situation is. It depends on whether you have backup to, you know, if you're able to call in a second crew or if you're able to, you know, if, you know, if you're a bit of an emotional basket case because it's someone you're close to, um, which is better, looking after the patient or driving the vehicle? You're emotionally impaired in both situations, right? So uh, I don't have a good answer for you. Um, you know, if you can call for backup, if I could get into the back of the ambulance with my partner and have a supervisor drive the ambulance or have another paramedic drive the ambulance, that's probably what I'd do, you know. But uh, yeah, it just takes laser focus, right, to focus on assessment and treatment and not try to transcend those emotions, those events, usually with someone you know. So, you know, every call is potentially dangerous um, and we do certain things uh, to protect ourselves. Let me just uh, backtrack a bit. So, for example, when we go to an apartment building and we knock on a door, we never stand in front of the door. We always stand to the side of the door. Maybe that sounds like ridiculous, but um, you know, if, if there's a clandestine drug lab in that apartment and, and we have the wrong, we're banging on the wrong door, <laughs> you know, and there's gunshots coming out of the door, uh, I don't want to be standing there uh, receiving the bullets. Uh, what are the chances of that happen? Maybe one in a million extremely low, depending on where you work. Uh, but we make it a habit, right, to stand off the side. When I worked on the Air Ambulance helicopter, um, just to give you a, an analogy, we never walked under the tail rotor. Uh, even if the helicopter was in the hangar and wasn't the engines weren't running, we never ever walked under the tail rotor because you want to keep muscle memory, right? You walk around only where it's safe and even when the blades weren't turning, we ducked to go to the ambulance because uh, if you don't do that same routine every single time, eventually um, when it's running, you might walk into the tail rotor into the blades. And it's not usually newbies around a helicopter to get killed, it's people who've been around helicopters for 10, 20 years. Right? <coughs> um, so we look for signs of, you know, domestic disputes, for example, we look for, uh, um, we look at people's manner, you know, if I go into a house for someone who's injured or ill, um, you know, if, if a victim of domestic violence, sometimes, um, you know, someone will call and they'll say they have a, a fever and you get there and you think, there ain't no fever happening here. Um, and the husband is looking rather stoic or maybe he's trying to answer all the questions for her and um, she's trying to tell you in some subtle way, he's been beating me up, uh, but she can't. I'm not gonna you know, say to her, uh, well, look, your temperature's good, everything's good. You, you really wanna go to the hospital? Uh, I'm gonna look at her, I'm trying to read the cues from her husband and from her, and, and I'm gonna say to her, look, I, you know, I think you may have an illness, we're gonna take you to the hospital. And uh, if he looks at me and says, well, that's stupid, she's fine, you know, I'm gonna say something, well, no, her temperature is actually 38.6. I'm gonna lie and um, tell him it's elevated and her heart rate's faster than normal. And so I have some concerns, so we're gonna take her. And so I don't wanna, uh, I wanna use my spidey senses and not reveal that I'm using my spidey senses. You know, I'm not gonna say, look, you look like an asshole to me who's been beating up your wife. Um, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna try to get out there without getting the crap kicked out of me or uh, without violence erupting. So you gotta watch for the subtle signs. I'll give you another example. We did a call once for um, 
a lady who was vital signs absent. And um, when we got there, uh, firefighters were there a couple of minutes before us and they asked the son of this patient to go out and meet us in the driveway to let us know that his mom was vital signs absent. So this guy came out and he told us this and then he turned around and started walking back towards the townhome. And my partner and I just looked at each other like, what the hell was that? Like, he didn't just tell us, but he told us with this very flat affect. He looked totally unfazed by it. Like, your mom's dead. And you're just saying, um, yeah, my mom, ha I can't even reenact it or emulate it, but he just said something. Um, the firefighters wanted me to tell you that my p mother doesn't have a pulse. And he just totally flat affect, turned around and went back. We get to the house. Uh, she had a pulse back now. Um, they, uh, they didn't do any chest compressions. They just shocked her once and got her back. And uh, uh, so we uh, stepped in and uh, put her on the monitor, did all that stuff. And her son was sitting in the kitchen with a buddy and they're having a casual conversation. Like he has no concern for her whatsoever. And they're even laughing at one point and this is not normal, right? Would you agree? Yeah. That's weird, right? Right? So don't dismiss your spidey senses. Trust your gut feelings. Like that's a pretty blatant, loud gut feeling, right? This, this is weird. This is not the normal response, right? So we took her to the hospital and she remained unconscious. We had trouble with her airway. We had trouble getting a, an IV line on her. We were very busy and uh, I made a mistake. I did not check her blood sugar level which I should have done. We do that routinely on anyone with an altered level of conscious, but we're so busy trying to keep her airway patent and stuff like that. And we got her medical history. She had a history of high blood pressure, high cholesterol. That was it. Um, so I should have taken the blood sugar. So we, when we got to the eMERGE, first thing I said was, didn't get a chance to take a blood sugar. So the eMERGE took a blood sugar and turns out her blood sugar was really, really low, like low enough to be unconscious. And this made no sense because she's a diabetic, right? So now there's some other interesting stuff. She had bruising on her chest. And I said to the firefighters, did you guys do compressions? They said, no. I said, she's got bruising on her chest. Are you sure you didn't do compressions? Like one of you didn't do compressions? And they said, no. Uh, now then again, if they'd done chest compressions, you probably wouldn't see bruises right away. So that was just me not thinking. Um, so the nursing staff asked the same thing. Like, why does she have these bruises? And uh, so she had bruises. She remained unconscious. They did a blood sugar. Um, they gave her some, some sugar and she woke up. So that was good. Um, it turns out that her husband was hospitalized at the same hospital and he's an insulin dependent diabetic. And they think what may have happened is the son tried to kill his mom with an insulin injection. So they launched a police investigation. Now the bruising of the chest was still a bit of a mystery but uh, one of the nurses um, just had a hunch and she called a friend of hers. This is a breach of privacy. This is illegal, by the way, I'm telling you this. Um, she, she called a friend of hers who worked in a dental surgeon's office and said, is there any chance that, you know, dental surgeon so-and-so uh, extracted a tooth on this lady? Because he had a reputation for putting his knee or his foot on the chest to pull teeth out. And uh, sure enough, Four days earlier, she'd had a tooth extracted and it was knee on the chest. And that's how she got the bruises on her chest. So that mystery was solved. But everything about uh, this son's character and his demeanor 
uh, raise red flags, raise the hair on the back of my neck. You know, something was wrong. Uh, and um, so uh, I don't know what came of that. Uh, I, I know um, uh, detectives were brought in and uh, the hospital staff answered some questions. They never talked to us. And, um, but this is, this is the thing. When you're on a scene, you got to pay attention to your gut feeling. What is your gut feeling? Uh, it's not intuition. Um, we can debate whether intuition actually exists, um, but it's not intuition. Your gut feeling is largely your subconscious mind processing things that your conscious mind isn't processing. So you're able to process a lot of things in your peripheral vision that your conscious mind may not be even uh, consciously aware of. Ashlyn? Um, so you were saying like you don't even know how the call ended up turning out. Yeah. Is that like generally you don't stay like I want to say it's like attached to the call, but like you don't follow up usually. Um, I always try to follow up on the calls, but you always you don't always get that long term follow up. Um, so at some point I'll tell you about another call I was involved in where police didn't uh, question us and it turned out to be a blessing. But save that story for another time. So. Um, you got to be aware of your, your surroundings. You've got to be aware of the affect. You know, if a child's been abused, uh, one of the parents or both the parents will try to answer a lot of the questions for that kid. And uh, we will uh, explain to them that we want the child to answer us just because we're trying to assess his ability to, uh, you know, his neurological status and his ability to articulate what's, what's happened to him. Um, but if I suspect child abuse in a kid, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on scene talking with the child or the parent. I'm just going to say, look, I'm concerned about this injury. We're going to take him to the hospital. If, the, if, if I'm concerned about an injury and the parents are saying no, I'm calling police. And we'll call it 10200, which is, means we need police. We need them here promptly. I'll say code 200 or 10200 code 4, which means get them here, lights and sirens. 102000 means my life in is in danger. Someone's you know, got a gun or a knife. Uh, I'm at risk, or someone's tried to assault me. Uh, Melanie. If you suspect the child's been abused, yeah. um, and you're taking them to the ambulance, yeah. do you bring the parents along? Uh, not in the back of the ambulance. One of them can come and they can sit in the front with my partner. Okay. Yeah, yeah, they don't sit in the back. Yeah. Uh, I'll allow parents to sit in the back all the time, but not if I think there's it's an abuse situation. Yeah. Um, so let's take a break and then we'll do the second part of this. Uh, let's take a break till, just let's keep it short. Let's take it till 10 after.